This is a Rooster Teeth production. January 8th, 1989. British Midland Airways Flight 092, a Boeing 737 with 126 people on board, was on a scheduled flight from London Heathrow Airport to Belfast International Airport at 7.52 p.m., climbing through 28,300 feet to reach its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet when something goes wrong. Passengers report seeing sparks flying out of the left engine as the cabin begins to fill with smoke and the plane begins to shake violently. The flight was diverted to nearby East Midlands Airport at the suggestion of British Midland Airways operations. After taking quick action to shut down the engine, the problem seemed to stop and the smoke cleared as the crew prepared for an emergency landing on runway 27 located right next to the busy M1 motorway. On final approach, the one remaining engine bursts into flames and the operating crew does not have enough time to restart the shutdown failed engine. The fairly new Boeing 737 with only 520 flight hours crashed into the motorway embankment before reaching the runway and broke into three pieces, killing 47 people. Did the crew take appropriate action and were simply unable to overcome the inevitable tragic loss of those 47 people on board? Find out what happened on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi, Gus and people. Oh, yeah. Hello, people. Uh, <laughs> welcome to uh, another episode. I, I say it a lot. This is uh, an interesting episode. This is an accident that led to many things changing that we kind of take for granted nowadays. It sounds interesting. Just the, the, the setup that you gave. How often does that happen, right? That both engines on a plane fail. Like that's why we've talked about this before about like ETOPS and how planes can fly on one engine. Yeah. How it's really weird. But without knowing anything else, like if you heard of a plane where two engines failed, is there anything that would come to mind? You, you Obviously, you didn't know anything about aviation before we started this podcast. We've been going for a little, almost three years now. That's crazy. Can you think of a common factor that would possibly cause two engines to fail on a plane? Something at the fuel? Yeah. That's what's common, right? Yeah. That's what's common between the two engines. Yeah. And of course, that wouldn't necessarily explain like fire and sparks uh-huh. and vibrations, but that's kind of the first thing you think about when two planes, or I'm sorry, when two <laughs> engines on a plane fail. It's like, was there, was there, did they run out of fuel? Was there water in the fuel? Like, why did both stop at the same time? And I think we've covered incidents like that where mm-hmm. there's a problem with fuel or fuel delivery, but not trying to spoil anything, getting ahead of ourselves. I just wanted to, to, to get into that. Uh, okay. Before we get into the actual cause and the meat of this incident, though, uh, I want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. We'll definitely post images of this plane where it finally came to rest because it's, like I said, it's between a major highway and the runway. Like it barely, it, luckily, I don't know how nobody on the highway got injured from this because it's like right next to a highway. I think they stopped, they ended up crashing about like a quarter mile away from the runway. Like it was oh my, so close. Oh, that's so like tragic when they're mm-hmm. that close mm-hmm. that close like a quarter of a mile that's like seconds yeah they were seconds yeah. from landing mm-hmm. so this flight like we said took off from london heathrow at seven fifty-two p.m and of course no issues it was a 75 minute flight to belfast before they could reach their cruising altitude the crew and the passengers all could hear like a pounding noise accompanied by severe vibrations and to make matters worse, smoke began pouring into the cabin through the ventilation system, and passengers noted that there was a burning smell in the air. Pounding and burning and smoke. Those are not, n- nothing good there. No, no, but nothing the good. Pounding is weird. It is weird. Any, spe- any speculation on that? Pounding. A pounding noise accompanied by severe v- vibrations. It sounds like, some, like something, like the, the, uh, something was loose. And and boom, 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 or something right. was caught in like the landing gear. It didn't like pull up correctly. But at this point, they're like at twenty eight thousand feet. You know, it, the gear comes up pretty quick after you get off the ground. So they didn't start hearing the pounding until then. Right. Okay. It was several minutes later. You know, they're almost at cruising altitude at this point. So I mean, I don't know the exact time. I don't have that in front of me. It would probably be like you know ten minutes after takeoff at this point. I don't know, like something like the fuel tank or something in it came loose and was like rattling. Well, what I worry about when I hear vibration is uh-huh. something in the engine. Since it's spinning so fast, okay, it's asymmetric. It's like when you when you put all your sheets in a dryer and they like bundle up. Uh-huh. Has that ever happened to you? And then it's like yeah, chunk, yeah. chunk, chunk, chunk every time it turns. Well, imagine you know, like on a you know you're 
dryers turning really slow. Imagine like on a jet engine where it's turning a couple yeah. thousand revolutions per minute. And then the other thing I didn't say is some passengers also noticed smoke and sparks coming from the left engine yeah, of the plane. Yeah, that's scary. You so that, that. that pretty much narrows it down. Like, oh, there it is. You know what will help with those sheets? Some uh, wool balls, dryer balls. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. Does that actually work? Yeah, they help break it up and they save on energy. They dry faster. Oh, so. look at that. That's a helpful, helpful hint. We're going to have to uh, to make hey. a new podcast. <laughs> Giving you laundry tips every week with Gus and Chris. A lot of people are probably doing laundry while listening to a podcast, right? So maybe like <laughs> someone's about to put sheets in the dryer and they're like, wait a minute. Also cuts down on uh, static and stuff. So it's like instead of dryer sheets, get some wool balls. Ah, I've seen those in the store before. Never, never, never knew anyone used them. Well, thanks for the recommendation, Chris. They'll save energy and uh, you won't be having to buy as many dryer sheets or at all. Yeah. yeah, nice. I don't think they would help much with plane engines, though. I don't think so. It might make it worse. Yeah. Well, with all this going on, the crew proceed to shut down an engine, disengage the auto throttle, and the smell of smoke in the cabin ceased. So mm-hmm. problem solved, right? Yeah, they did right. Yeah. Air traffic control then cleared the flight to make an emergency landing at East Midlands Airport, which luckily for them was just 10 minutes away from where they were. Which is crazy because they were only 75 minute, it's only 75 minute flight. So how, how, how long did the flight was this at this point? I don't have the timeline in front of me. At this point, it would have probably been maybe 10, 15 minutes after takeoff. Okay. So this is like halfway point, maybe. No, not, not, not even. Well, I mean, the, 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 the landing, the oh, redirect it would, would have been about halfway through the flight yeah. if it was a 75 minute flight. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, they begin their descent and begin mm-hmm. getting ready to land at the East Midlands airport. When they do this, like I said, they, you know, they disengage the auto throttle and, you know, they switch to manual throttle. And since they begin their descent, you know, they pull the throttle back, which reduces the fuel flow to the engines. And, you know, everything seems to be under control at this point. Yeah. It's time for a spoiler, Chris. Uh-oh. Uh, I, I can't really beat around the bush. Normally, I try to hide this uh-huh, and, like, uh-huh. kind of be cagey about it. There's no way to, to talk around it. So I just, I just have to tell you what they did wrong here right off the bat because we got to get right into it. The crew mistakenly believed it was the right engine that had failed. Oh, no. Yeah, so they shut down the right engine, and they were trying to fly with only their damaged left engine. And they didn't notice it because, like I said, they turned off the auto throttle, and they pulled the the throttle back to start descending. And since there was less fuel going into the left engine, mm. like the the speed on the rotation slows down, the vibrations kind of stop. So they think the problem's solved, when in reality, they've turned off their one good engine and... They're trying to fly under their one bad engine. Oh, my God. And you said that people saw sparks flying out of the left engine. Mm-hmm. And they why'd they turn off the right one then? Well, it, it's hard to say. I don't think there was ever a definitive answer to that. Uh-huh. There is some speculation. It's speculated that, you know, there's vibration meters for the engines that the pilots can look at to determine okay. if one engine's vibrating abnormally. But it's speculated that maybe the vibrations were so intense that it was difficult for the first officer to read the instruments you know you ever try to oh, look at like yeah. a screen and you're like jostling around and it's moving and like there's two co- imagine that there's two columns of data right next to each other and you're trying to figure out which is which but everything's shaking i'm just thinking of like an early jj abrams movie where there's just like <laughs> <laughs> lots of shaking <laughs> lots of shaking yeah. and lens flares and you're like let's yeah. go. Uh. so that's one of the speculations that maybe the first officer couldn't tell which instrument it was because it was shaking so bad he also in the cockpit voice, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll get to the details about this later, but in the cockpit voice recorder, you can hear the captain ask, which engine is it? And the first officer says, it's the left. No, it's the right. Oh. So, and then and, and when interview, the, the, the pilots both survived the crash, actually. Okay. Uh, yeah. And in post-accident interviews, the first officer could not give a reason as to why he said it was the right engine. Oh, it's just misinterpretation, misdiagnosis. He just Maybe. But on top of that, to kind of add, like, as, as always, right? It's never a straightforward answer. There's always complexity to these yeah. things. This was a brand new version of the 737. This was a 737-400. It was a fairly new plane. Okay. In previous versions of the 737, the right air conditioning pack was fed with bleed air from the right number two engine, and that supplied air to the flight deck, while the left air conditioning pack, which was fed from the left number one engine, supplied air to the passenger cabin. On this kind of plane, on this new 737-400, yeah. the left pack feeds the flight deck, but also feeds the aft passenger cabin, oh. while the right feeds the forward passenger cabin. So when they saw the smoke, they might have thought, 
oh, well, on the 737, the air we get comes from the right engine. So it's probably the right engine that's acting up. But this was a new kind of 737. So it was being fed from the left engine. And they didn't know that because it's it's like a minor technical detail about how the air conditioner works on the plane. And you said that like passengers saw sparks flying out of the left engine, right? Right. Did the crew see that? Well, when you're in, you know, when... The pilots can't see that, right? Yeah. They're up in the cockpit. They can't. There's no way for them to really. I mean, uh-huh. maybe if they try really hard to look, they might be able to see it. But I wouldn't think they'd be able to see either engine from a 737 cockpit. There are some surviving passengers who say, you know, that they saw the the sparks and the fire in the left engine, and that when the captain made his announcement that they were diverting, he said that they were having a problem with the right engine. But the oh. passengers said that he didn't think anything that. You know, he trusted the pilots knew what they were doing, so he oh. didn't raise the issue at all or didn't ask or clarify. So, yet yeah, there were some people on board. There were presumably some passengers. I, I know there were because I've seen interviews with them. There were some passengers who saw a fire in the left engine, heard the captain say he was turning off the right engine, but didn't say anything. Oh, but see, I don't see in that situation too. You you don't want to be like backseat right. piloting. You know, you don't. I don't know. That's 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 a tricky thing because. Where is that line where you should be like, hey, hit the little call thing. Hey, there's smoke coming out of the engine. Are you sure that that's like, I I don't know. Yeah, I think at that point. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we know that this resulted in an accident. We know people died. So it's easy to say, yeah, yeah. they should have rang the call button and called the flight attendant over and asked. I think it's prudent even nowadays. If you see, you know, if you're at a window seat and you see something happening with one engine and the captain says, you know, that there's a problem with the other engine or whatever. Yeah. Ring the bell and, you know, just ask the flight attendant, like, hey, I saw, you know, tell them, I saw fire on this engine. Uh, I just want to make sure that someone knows. Yeah. The, you know, it, it doesn't hurt because you're not interrupting the pilot. The pilot, right? It's, you're telling yeah. the flight attendant who's going to take the information and then filter it. So it's not yeah. like 20 passengers are going to tell the pilot. 20 yeah, passengers yeah. might tell the flight attendant. It's not like there's a will. doorbell that you go walk up and. <laughs> right. So what happened was, you know, they descended and they were approaching the runway. So at that point, then they needed to increase thrust again because they were stopping their descent. They needed to like level mm-hmm. off or, you know, maintain their altitude. So the captain increases the thrust again, which is what causes the damaged engine to reignite its fire and then cause the engine to fail. Right, right. So then at that point, they're really low and now they have no engines. Ugh. So like before the engine was working, just smoking and... It was like idling, but not working well. Uh-huh. But they've turned off the one that works. Correct. So they have... Uh, and it, you, it's not like you can just flip a switch and turn the engine back on. Mm-hmm. You know, once, you know, they, they I think when uh, he increases the, the throttle and the, and uh-huh. the left engine fails, I want to say they were like at 680 or 700 feet above the ground. So that's, there's not enough time to restart no. the other engine. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, yeah, at that point, they have no engines that are working. Then they're just in an uncontrolled glide heading to the runway. And, uh, you know, at that point, you know, the first officer begins trying to restore power to the, the shutdown engine. Uh-huh. There's not enough time. The captain alerts the passengers that they're going to, you know, crash land and instructs everyone to brace. Oh, my God. And the plane narrowly misses the motorway and impacts the ground just before the runway. And it broke up into three pieces. If they had, is there a version where they could have glided to the runway or was it just I mean, not possible? They were so close that. Yeah, they could have if they knew that they had no engines. Uh-huh. You know, he would have the the captain would have probably come in a little higher. Yeah. And you know, tease the glide out. Plus also, they thought they had one working engine. If they had, you know, pitched for best glide speed, they could have extended that glide and they probably could have made it, but again, they thought they still had that one working engine. So there is a misdiagnosis of the problem which just compounded everything. Right. So this flight happened in the UK. So the investigation's handled by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch. You know, they say that the flight left Heathrow for Belfast, 752, eight crew, 118 passengers. And what happened was, as the aircraft was climbing through 28,300 feet, the outer panel of one blade in the fan of the number one left engine detached. So, you know, you when you look into the engine, you see all those little fan blades. Uh-huh. One of the tips of one of those blades broke off. It just snapped off. It just snapped off. Like entirely, or is it like dangling? Entirely. So the it, it's it's a it was actually kind of a fairly small piece. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe it was the number seventeen blade. Just like broke off. It snapped off. Which is so everything's 
not symmetrical anymore, which is what starts causing those vibrations and like oh. that banging, thudding noise. Like again, like the sheets that are balled up in a dryer. <laughs> so since that little piece of the fan blade broke off, uh-huh. the airflow through the engine is not smooth anymore, which causes the compressor stalls in that engine, which starts resulting in the airframe shuddering and then smoke and fumes to start being generated and being pumped into the flight deck. When it broke off, did it get like sucked into the engine or did it just fall off? So uh, they can't be 100% entirely certain you know, uh-huh. about that. But the speculation is that it broke off uh-huh. and that it embedded itself into like a soft part of the inside of the engine housing. Oh, like thump. Yeah. yeah, and it was just stuck there. And that when they got closer to the ground and when the captain pushed forward on the throttle to try to increase power right before landing, Uh that it became loose and then shot back into the engine and caused more pieces to break off. And that's why it ultimately Mm. failed and stopped working entirely. So God, that's, oh, that makes sense in my head, like in the movie version. (laughs) So um, (laughs) again, they can't be 100% certain about that, Mm -hmm. but that's what they think happened. It's really crazy how they go about investigating these things. You know, they talk to eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses are... Not always reliable, but, you know, they talked to eyewitnesses on the ground who said they saw fire and they saw things falling out of the plane. So they set up like a line of people shoulder to shoulder to walk through like fields and walk through an area to find any little piece of metal they can. And that's how they find that little piece of the broken blades and all the different pieces. And then they have to try to figure out what broke first. You know, wow. what, where did all of this come from? Sounds like the, the, the missing child scenes in all the movies from the yeah. 90s or 80s. <laughs> yeah. Did do they have metal detectors too? I don't know. I think in the fo- like I saw some you know archive footage of uh-huh. it. It's just people walking around and looking without metal detectors. They may have people also with metal detectors, yeah. but I think you know they they're not looking for anything that's necessarily buried. They're just looking for stuff yeah, on top yeah. of the ground. And it's really it's all really interesting because then everything's broken in pieces. They mm-hmm. have to do like metallurgical studies on each of the fan blades because even though they're all the same material there's tiny differences in them Mm. to figure out like where each individual little broken piece came from and then to try to reconstruct all the fan blades to figure out which one broke first and then how everything else broke after that is that designed that way so that like they are able to diagnose what happened like oh well this this piece of this engine is going to be made with this alloy or has this marking you know no I, i think it's just Tiny differences in the manufacturing process. Okay. Which I guess makes sense because we've talked about an incident before where there's like slightly two little bolts that are very similar and they got put in the wrong plane and that caused it. So you kind of want everything to look and be different. Right. And in fact, we're going to get into a little bit of that a little further on. That's a really good point. We're going to get into something related to that Uh a little further Uh on in this episode. Using the internet without ExpressVPNs, like leaving your laptop exposed at the coffee shop table while you run to the bathroom most of the time, you're probably fine. But what if one day you come out of the bathroom and your laptop is gone? Whether you're at a coffee shop, airport, a hotel, or basically any unencrypted network, the scary truth is that your personal data, like passwords and financial information, is at risk. Doesn't even take a lot of technical knowledge to hack someone. Uh, Just cheap, some cheap hardware is needed, and a smart 12-year-old could probably do it. Using ExpressVPN uh, really gives me peace of mind anytime I connect to a public network. And it's, it's available on all kinds of devices, uh, whether I'm on my laptop, on my tablet, on my phone. I know that it's ExpressVPN is there, keeping everything locked down and safe for me while I'm browsing the web. One of the best parts is that while ExpressVPN is creating a secure encrypted tunnel uh, between your device and internet, your connection doesn't slow down at all. It's also super easy to use. All you do is fire up the app, click one button to get protected. So secure online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash blackboxdown. You can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. So back to the investigation report here. So the crew at this point, you know, believe that the number two engine had suffered the damage. So they throttled that engine back and then subsequently shut it down. <laughs> and... When they did this, the shuddering caused by the surging of the number one engine ceased because, you know, they they throttled both engines back. Yeah. And that kind of made the crew think that they had dealt with everything correctly, that everything was fine. Uh, And then the number one engine at that point, they thought, was operating normally. And that's when they diverted and, you know, everything continued from there. And and because they're kind of landing, they're kind of like going and gliding and not using the engine that much, right? Right. Yeah. 
So the crew initiated their diversion to East Midlands Airport, and they received radar direction from air traffic control to kind of get them lined up for an instrument approach to land on runway 27. Uh-huh. The approach continued normally, although with, you know, a, a higher than normal level of vibration from the number one engine until an abrupt reduction of power, followed by a fire warning, and it occurred on this engine at a point 2.4 miles from the runway. So mm. like I said, it, it seemed fine, and then... When they tried to give it a little more throttle, it started vibrating more again, and then reduction of power, fire. So presumably, that's when that little chunk got ingested into the engine, and that's when it finally failed. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, this is 2.4 miles from the runway. So (laughs) really close. How many seconds were they from touching ground at that point? If you think about it, if you're, uh, let's say you're driving a car at 60 miles an hour, 2.4 2.4 miles would be like 2.4 minutes. Yeah. Obviously, they're going faster than that's a car. So, so if they're going 120 miles an hour, that's uh, 1.2 minutes. Yeah, so they're like a minute, a mi- maybe two. Yeah, not not even. No, a minute, maybe even a little. 45 seconds to a minute, I would oh say. Oh, God. Oh, they were so close. I mean, I guess it could have still exploded on the ground, but at least maybe not as badly. Because they would have, if they were landing, they probably would have done the reverse thrusters, which would have... Could have exploded, right? But the crash, the crash was from it hitting the ground, not the engine bursting. And right, so man, yeah, it's a, it's a there's a lot going on. And like I said, the aircraft initially struck a field adjacent to the eastern embankment of the M1 motorway, then suffered a, a second severe impact on the sloping western embankment of the motorway. So it's like just to the east of the motorway, it's flat ground. Then just to the west, there's an embankment that goes up to where the airport is. So it hit the flat ground, kind of bounced over the motorway, and then slammed in that embankment. Uh, and that's where it broke into three pieces. Mm. 39 passengers died in the accident, and then a further eight passengers died later from their injuries. Well, that's tragic, but honestly, we've covered way worse incidents where a way greater majority of people died, right? Yeah, that, that's, that, I mean, that's really an optimistic way to look at it. The pessimistic <laughs> way to look at it is they still had a working engine. Nobody should have died. Okay, yeah, that's true. That's very true. (laughs) And then of the other 79 occupants, 74 suffered serious injuries. So just a little bit of background, you know, the the report gives what they call factual information uh, about this flight. Yeah. This plane, this aircraft was engaged what they call a double shuttle between London Heathrow and Belfast, Uh Aldergrove Airport. It landed at Heathrow at 6.45 p.m. on completion of the first shuttle flight, then took off again for Belfast at 7.52, and that's this flight we're talking about. Yeah, And the first officer was the one handling the aircraft at that point. When they took off, they climbed initially to 6,000 feet. They leveled off for two minutes and then received clearance to continue climbing up to flight level 120, which is 12,000 feet. Shortly afterwards, at 7.58, clearance uh, was passed to climb to flight level 350, which is 35,000 feet, on a direct track to the uh, VOR beacon at Trent. So all of this is really fast. You know, at this point, we're talking six minutes after takeoff. At 8.05, and five seconds, which is 13 minutes after takeoff. That's when they were climbing through 28,300 feet, about 20 miles south, southeast of the East Midlands Airport. And that's when they first started experiencing that vibration, the smell of fire. Mm. So to answer your earlier question, it was 13 minutes after takeoff. And they were 20 miles away from the airport they went. They ended up diverting to. Is there a version where they should have just turned around and gone back? No, it, they were further away. Uh-huh. It would have taken longer to get back to Heathrow. Plus okay. also... Heathrow's a lot busier with other planes coming and going. You know, it's it, the East Midlands Airport is quieter, so it's easier to get priority and not have to worry about any other planes in the area. Okay. Well, as many other planes in the area. So when, you know, when the vibration and the smell starts happening, the, even the cockpit voice recorder can pick up the sound of the vibration. Oh. And the flight data recorder showed significant fluctuations in lateral and longitudinal accelerations, which was just like shaking. There were no fire warnings, no other visual or aural warnings on the flight deck. The commander stated afterwards that he saw and smelt air conditioning smoke. The first officer later remembered only a strong smell of burning. And there are no fire detectors like in the engine? There are, uh-huh. but it's not going off at this time. It's not going off yet. Okay. Yeah. It's one of the things that they change after this is like better diagnosis of engine issues and which one's which. So not necessarily because the instrument showed everything correctly. It's the oh. human factor you're dealing with here, right? Oh, so like they had the information they needed to diagnose it correctly. They just had right. the J.J. Abrams effect. Right. Of the engine, of the shake. Too much shaky cam. Too much shaky cam and... Mm. The commander took control of the aircraft, 
disengaged the autopilot. He later stated he looked at the engine instruments but did not gain from them any clear indication of the source of the problem. He also later stated he thought that the smoke and fumes were coming forward from the passenger cabin, which, like we talked about before, based on his understanding of the air conditioning system, led him to believe it was the number two right engine. Mm. This is also one of those issues where someone thinks they know what the answer is, and then they kind of fit the data to reach that answer. Yeah, like, uh, what is that bias? Like confirmation bias? Confirmation bias. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Oh, it's my brain is telling me, based on past experience, it's this. So I'm going to trust that versus actually looking at the data and the information in front of me. Right. And speaking of the information in front of him, it's at this point that the first officer said he monitored the engine instruments. And Uh when asked by the commander which engine was causing the trouble, he said, it's the left. It's the right one. Ugh. To which the commander responds by saying, okay, throttle it back. Oh, man. The auto throttle was disengaged. Number two engine was throttled back. The first officer later said he had no recollection of what it was he saw in the engine instruments that led him to make that assessment. The commander's instructions to throttle back was given 19 seconds after the onset of the vibration. <sighs> when, according to the flight data recorder, the number two engine was operating with steady engine indications. So the flight data recorder showing the number two engine is working fine. Uh huh. But that's the one you know that they throttle all the way back and end up shutting down. During the 11 seconds that elapsed between the disengagement of the autopilot and the throttling back of the number two engine, the aircraft slowly rolled to the left through 16 degrees, but the commander made no corrective movement of aileron or rudder. I note this because this is a very interesting statement in the report here. If the aircraft begins rolling left like that, That means, in my mind, of of course, armchair quarterback, right? In my mind, that means you have asymmetric thrust and your right engine's giving more power than your left engine. And that's why you're rolling to the left. But wait, that happened when? When they disengaged the autopilot, between the time they disengaged the autopilot and throttled back the number two engine. So they they should have noticed. Mm, They turn off the autopilot. Now it's just the engines running on their own. Right. And it's turning. Which means, and and based upon the turning, they should know which engine is messed up. Correct. They should know the right engine is giving more power than the left engine, and that's why they're rolling to the left. Another another clue that they could have picked up on that they didn't. Right, and they make no corrective action or comment on it. And they didn't. They didn't even correct the 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 roll. Not at that time. Ugh. They're probably not looking at that instrument. You know, they're probably looking elsewhere, not mm-hmm. noticing that. Within one to two seconds of the closure of the number two throttle, the aircraft rolled level again. So at this point, finally, they, they, they pull it back to level. The fluctuations in lateral and longitudinal acceleration ceased. That's like uh-huh. the vibration sensor. The number one engine fan speed settled at a level 3%, its previous stable speed. So everything's kind of stabilizing at this uh-huh. point. You said 3% of what it was before? Yeah, below its previous stable speed. So it's run 3% of, of is how fast it's going versus... Yeah, 3% slower. Oh, oh, 3% slower. I think even like... Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's a really minuscule difference uh, at this point. And then the... It, it, this is a little technical as well, but the exhaust gas temperature stabilized at 50 degrees Celsius above its previous level. So the exhaust gas is a little hotter than it was before, which is also an indication something maybe slightly amiss. And, th- and that's readable in the instruments? Yeah. So they could... Another thing they could have picked up on. Yeah. And it, and it was hot to begin with, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You remember, um, you know, we went flying together in a little Cessna a couple uh-huh. of weeks ago. Even in that Cessna, there's a, a gauge for exhaust gas temperature. Oh. Uh, and that's one of the things you look at. Remember when you, uh-huh. uh, we, when you get to a higher altitudes in a plane like that, not, obviously it's very different in, in passenger planes, <laughs> but in a small plane, as you get higher, you need to adjust the fuel oxygen mixture. Uh, looking at the exhaust gas temperature is one of the, one of the indications you look at to determine where the optimal fuel air mixture is. Oh, to try and get the right temperature for... for right. hmm. Because fuel also cools the cylinder heads. So you'd have a, a cooler temperature. Fuel does that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a cool liquid. It's huh. much cooler than the cylinder head temperature because that, that's hot. That's where the explosions are happening. Well, I never thought about fuel cooling things. To see. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's one of the things you look at. So yeah, just, yeah. To, just to put it into perspective, even... Some small single engine Cessnas will have readings for this. It's something you learn to look at from the very beginning of pilot uh, lessons. So immediately after throttling back the number two engine, the first officer advised London Air Traffic Control. They had an emergency situation, which looked like an engine fire. The commander then ordered the first officer to shut it down. 
This order was given 43 seconds after the onset of the vibration, but its execution was delayed when the commander said, seems to be running all right now. Let's just see if it comes in. And then the shutdown was mm. further delayed as the first officer responded to a radio message from air traffic control, which advised the crew of the aircraft's position and asked what alternate field they wanted to go to. Uh-huh. First officer said it looked as if they would take it to East Midlands, but then, then they told air traffic control to stand by. Then at about this time, a flight attendant used the cabin address system to advise the passengers to fasten their seatbelts. The first officer then told the commander he was about to start the engine failure and shutdown checklist, saying at the same time, seems we have stabilized, we've still got the smoke. And then again, action on the checklist was suspended as the commander called British Midland Airways operations to advise the company of the situation. Two minutes and seven seconds after the start of the vibration and during a short... This is the... Sorry. And the action on the checklist to shut down the right engine... Correct. So that almost, that might have sa- saved them because the right engine was still going? It absolutely would have. Or, or is there a version where they shut it down sooner, realize the problem, and restart the correct one? I don't think so, no. no? Uh, because they didn't realize the problem until they increased the throttle again when they were lower. Uh, okay. And the reason I'm, I'm going through all of this right now is yeah. just to show that they were very distracted. Yeah. In, you know, uh, yeah. While, uh, instead of like focusing on the situation, instead of focusing on the checklist, they're, they're talking to air traffic control, they're talking to company, they've got messages coming in, they're, they're distracted by the communication side of things. And they always say when you're flying, there's three things, it's aviate, navigate, communicate in that order. I think mm-hmm. we've talked about that in previous episodes. Yeah. The first thing, you got to fly the plane <laughs> before anything else. Everything else can wait. Fly the plane, figure out what you're doing, and then deal with navigation, then deal with your communication. So... Would the correct thing to have been done where like the first officer is dealing with all the communication and navigation and then all the flying is left to the captain? Would that have been the better? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's what they were doing. Just the captain was getting too involved with the communication Mm. on the other side of things. (sighs) Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a little frustrating instead of like really focusing, you know, when air, if air traffic control is trying to get in touch with them or, you know, whatever else is going on, you just tell them stand by finish your checklist, finish diagnosing, what are you doing? And then, okay, now we, you know, come up with your action plan, start executing it, and then let the other people know. Yeah. And the commander, you know, later recollected that as soon as the number two engine was shut down, all evidence and smell of smoke cleared from the flight deck. And again, this convinced him that they had done the right thing. Mm. And then this is also at the same time when they further reduced the power on the number one engine, which continued to operate at reduced power with no... No symptoms that something was wrong other than a higher than normal level of vibration and an increased fuel flow. So that's the only two things that are slightly off in the instruments. But isn't it also turning? Yes, but at this point, they've, they've pulled back the throttle on the number two engine. Uh-huh. So it's not turning the same way it was before. That was just like a, a brief thing that happened. Once, they, once they, sh- they pull back the power in the number two engine, they know they have asymmetric thrust. They know that it's not going to be operating normally. Yeah. So So... Even though, and the number one is the left, right? Correct. Okay. So even though the number one is the one that's best up, it's still, now that number two is off, number one is, I guess, propelling the plane equally on both sides. So it's, it's not going to like pull to one side, even, right? It is pulling a little bit. If number two is shut off and number one is still on, you know, it's reduced power. They're, you know, they're pulling back to descend. They are still getting asymmetric thrust because they're still getting some thrust from the left side. So they're expecting a little bit of a roll to the right at this point. Okay. When it rolled to the left, it was a brief window between when they turned off the autopilot and before they powered down the number two engine. So in the cabin, the passengers and the flight attendants heard the unusual noise accompanied by moderate to severe vibration. Some passengers were also aware of what they described as smoke, but none could describe its color or density. They described the smell of burning as rubber, oil, and hot metal. And, you know, like we talked about earlier, many saw signs of fire from the left engine, which some described as fire, some described as torching, and some described as sparks. Gus, I don't want to know what hot metal smells like. Let's not find out. (laughs) Several of the flight attendants described the noise as a low repetitive thudding, like a car backfiring. And one described how the shuttering shook the walls of the Ford galley. The three flight attendants in the rear of the cabin saw evidence of a fire from the number one engine, and two of them briefly saw light-colored smoke in the cabin. Soon after the number two engine was shut down, the commander called the flight service manager to the flight deck and asked him, did you get smoke in the cabin back there? To which the flight service manager replied, we did, yes. 
The commander then instructed him to clear up the cabin, pack everything away. About one minute later, the flight service manager returned to the flight deck and said, sorry to trouble you, the passengers are very panicky. And that's when the commander broadcast to the passengers that there was trouble with the right engine, which had produced some smoke in the cabin, that that engine was now shut down and they could expect to land at East Midlands Airport in about 10 minutes. This is what we talked about earlier when the passengers heard the announcement saying that the right engine was shut down. And they were like, but we saw fire in the left engine. Mm. So this is, you know, 10 minutes before they were expecting to land. There was time at this point if... The pilots had been alerted. They could have started a restart procedure. They could have had the right engine restarted. And there's and enough they time. Would have here. been fine. Yeah, correct. One of the questions I'm sure our listeners might be thinking about is the flight attendants who saw signs of fire in the left engine. Why didn't they say anything? And they said they had not heard the commander's reference to the right engine on his announcement. Oh, they didn't hear it. Right. They were probably preoccupied, getting ready, packing things away, or mm. you know, preparing for this diversion. Uh, And then just, you know, even though we said passengers who saw fire from the number one engine were puzzled by this reference, by the time the announcement was made, the smell of smoke had dissipated. So maybe they were like, well, you know, that's not what we saw, but maybe he knows more. The problem seems to be better. They know what they're doing. They seem like they're taking care of it. Right. 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 I don't want to trouble them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't want to bother. Yeah. Mm. So the number two engine was shut down about five miles south of the East Midlands Airport. Uh, that's the right engine. Having cleared the aircraft to turn right and descend to flight level 100, London Air Traffic Control passed control to Manchester Air Traffic Control, who passed headings to steer for the aircraft to descend to the north of the East Midlands Airport. And then, you know, like we talked about earlier, line up for the instrument landing system on runway 27. During the descent, the commander did not re-engage the autopilot, but flew manually while the first officer dealt with radio communications. This is what you said earlier. Like, this is the ideal scenario. Uh-huh. One of them is dealing with communication. One of them is just flying the plane. Flight deck workload remained high because the first officer needed to get weather and attempted to, you know, program the flight management system to pull up uh, all the information they needed on their computer. And, you know, he was distracted for about two minutes do- doing this. Okay. At 8, 12, and 28 seconds, the commander attempted to review the situation saying, now what indications do we actually get Rapid vibrations in the airplane, smoke, and then his discussion is interrupted by air traffic control, Mm. uh, giving them a new radar heading, and then further clearing them down to 4,000 feet and a radio frequency change. So at this point, like this could have potentially saved them. This is when the captain's like, okay, so what exactly did we see? Let's review it. And then as he's going through it, you know, all the problems, they get interrupted by (laughs) communication. So then contact was established on the new frequency. The first officer began to read the one engine inoperative descent and approach checklist. And then radio calls again interrupt this activity because East Midlands approach controller asked the commander to make a test call to the fire service, which he did, but then didn't get a response. Then finally, they complete the approach checklist at 8.17 and 33 seconds. And they're about 15 miles from touchdown, descending through 6,500 feet. Then a minute later, they change their radar vector So they're still getting lined up. And you see, again, this kind of what I talked about earlier, communication, even though it seems pressing, it should come last. They keep getting interrupted as they're trying to do checklists or they're trying to review or, you know, really wrap their heads around the situation. So when they were about 13 miles from touchdown on this heading, descending to 3,000 feet, air traffic control had them do a right turn to get lined up. And then during this turn, the power was increased on the number one engine to level the aircraft at 3,000 feet. And then that's when the vibration indicators begin really kicking up again. The aircraft was cleared to descend to 2,000 feet, and the commander began a slow descent, calling successively for two and then five on his flaps. And then when he's about 2,000 feet above ground, the commander calls for the landing gear to be lowered as he passed the outer marker about 4.3 miles from touchdown, and he calls for 15 degrees of flaps. Uh One minute later, when they're at 2.4 miles from touchdown at a height of 900 feet above the ground, that's when the number one engine finally dies. That's when it has its abrupt decrease in power. The commander called immediately for the first officer to restart the other engine. The first officer began trying, but there's no time now. The commander then raised the nose of the aircraft in an effort to reach the runway. 17 seconds after power loss, the fire warning system operated on the number one engine. You you asked about that earlier. This is finally when the fire warning goes off. And seven seconds later, the ground proximity warning system sounded and continued with increasing repetitive frequency as the aircraft descended below the glide path. Mm -hmm. The commander ordered the first officer not to carry out the fire drill. And at 8.24 and 33 seconds, the commander broadcast a crash warning on the cabin address system using the words, prepare for crash landing. 
Two seconds later, as the airspeed fell below 125 knots, the stall warning stick shaker operated and continued to operate until the aircraft struck the ground at 824 and 43 seconds. And the last airspeed recorded on the flight data recorder was 115 knots. No power became available from the number two engine before the aircraft struck the ground. He said not to do fire prevention. Not to do the fire drill, right. Because there wasn't time. I think so. Yeah, he knew there was no time. Mm. And that would just be like, you know, there's, there's a procedure they do. You know, they pull like the fire extinguisher to, you know, that deploys in the engine and, yeah. uh, you know, kills the fire and also stops the engine. The initial ground impact was in a nose-high attitude on level ground just to the east of the M1 motorway. The aircraft passed through trees, suffered its second major impact 70 meters to the west and 10 meters lower on the western carriage of the M1 motorway. Fuselage was extensively disrupted and the aircraft came to rest entirely on the wooded western embankment about 900 meters from the threshold of runway 27, displaced 50 meters to the north of the extended runway center line. So at 900 meters, that's 2,700 feet or so and about 50 meters to the north, so just a little off the center line, 150 feet or so. Several of the passengers described heavy vibration immediately prior to the impact, and one passenger in the rear of the aircraft described the vibration as being severe enough to open the overhead bins and cause them to spill contents. Ooh, that's like that movie thing. Yeah, it totally is. (laughs) Passengers in the rear of the aircraft described two distinct impacts. Those in the front only appeared to have been aware of the final impact. Ground witnesses who saw the final approach saw clear evidence of a fire associated with the left engine. The intake of the engine was filled with yellow-orange fire and flames were observed streaming aft, pulsating in unison with thumping noises. Metallic rattling was also heard. Flaming debris was seen falling from the aircraft. And it was kind of what we talked about earlier, about the, the witnesses on the ground and what they saw. Yeah. A couple sentences about a radar. Confusing and weird to me. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why we're going to talk about them because I, I don't, And you're going to have a lot of questions. I don't have answers. I have a lot of questions about this too. But this is from the report. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to say this part. Okay. Okay. So after the aircraft crashed, a British Midlands Airways engineer entered the flight deck and switched off the main battery switch and the standby power switch. He later returned to the flight deck and switched off the engine ignition and fuel booster pumps. The engine start levers were found in the cutoff position. No witness was found who could testify as to having moved them. Wait, and when was this? After the crash. What? I know. I don't, again, this raises a lot of questions. I don't have any answers. So after the crash, presumably an engineer for the airline came into the cockpit, started running some of the checklists to turn off the battery, the standby power, turned off the fuel pumps because they were found off, but no witness was found who could testify as to having moved them. And no one admitted to it? So I, I think, so I think it, it's worded confusingly, but I think there's two different, if I had to guess, I think there's two different people. I think the engineer admitted to it and switched off the main battery and the standby power switch and then came back and turned off the ignition switch and fuel booster pumps. I think someone else, either one of the pilots or that engineer did the second part, but just didn't remember, which was the engine start levers were found in the cutoff position. So I think it's just worded confusingly. Uh-huh. I think that the engineer admitted to coming in and doing the first part, but neither the engineer nor, nor the pilots remember dealing with the engine start levers. Was this done to stop explosions or fi- like why? So these would things are things that you would want to do typically before evacuating the plane, uh-huh. uh, you know, turning off the battery and the power and also the fuel booster pumps. You turn them off so that if the fuel pumps are still working, they're not just pumping fuel, fuel out into out, the yeah. wreckage. So it's kind of safety things you do before you evacuate the plane. So it's good stuff. The issue is they don't know who did it. (laughs) Well, they know who did the first part. They don't know who did the second part. Uh. The engineer admitted to to the first things. They just don't know who put the engine start levers in the cutoff position. So, and this is, okay. This is the first time you mentioned the engineer because this is, you said 89, right? Yeah. So this is right at that point where engineers were mostly being phased out, right? Right. And this is also a brand new plane, remember? A brand new 730, a new type of 737 with even more, a very modern plane. What was the engineer doing during all this? I think he was either a passenger or like deadheading, going, you know, to work at Belfast or something. Okay. So he wasn't in the cockpit during the flight. That's what I was wondering. It's like there's an engineer this whole time. Why isn't he (laughs) helping out? He was in the passenger cabin. Okay. But, and he didn't, seems like he could have been looking, seeing the smoke. I don't know. Maybe he, I, I don't know. Again, I speculate maybe he was seated on the right side and then didn't oh, see. Oh, yeah. 
That anything happening on the left side. If I had to guess. Sorry, I was just was like, there's an engineer. Yeah. What's he doing? I, 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 like I said, it was going to raise a lot of questions, <laughs> but wanted to talk about it. So he was like, I'm just going to go and turn this. <laughs> like, yeah. well, he doesn't know if the pilot survived or not, right? Oh. Because after, this is after the crash. That's yeah. probably why he went up there. And uh, the captain, in fact, uh, suffered a broken back. Oh, my God. Ouch. It was pretty serious injuries that were suffered. So, uh, you know, he was probably going up there to assess the situation and do what he could to try yeah, to help. Yeah, okay. You know, like, if imagine if, you know, you know the, how these systems work. You see them in the back of the plane. You're not sure if the pilots are alive. You're like, I need to go up there and make things safe. Yeah, yeah. Turn off these things so that when we're evacuating, everyone doesn't die. Right. If you have a broken back, how do you evacuate a plane? I think rescuers had to get him out of the plane. Okay. After, like, there were, the danger of continued fire was taken care of. It, it's, it, it, it's tough. Though, luckily for them, they were so close to the airport, the emergency personnel yeah. showed up very quickly. Uh, there was no post-crash fire as well. Mm-hmm. So that was also beneficial. Yeah. I think, you know, when you're in that situation... Well, what did I say earlier? 74 of the 79 survivors suffered serious injuries. Yeah. I think everyone was pretty hurt. Mm. So I think there probably were not a lot of people immediately exiting the plane. Okay. Also, we're going to get into this uh, here in just a bit. The seats on the plane, they kind of came loose from the floor. Oh. And they almost created like a sandwiching effect where they all kind of smushed the people together. We're going to get into that a little bit here, uh, a little further. There's a lot, because, you know, we haven't even talked about why the blade came undone in the first place. That's actually the, that, that's the <laughs> next thing I'm about to talk about. Uh, that's the next bullet point I have here is the cause of fatigue initiation in fan blade number 17. So the metallurgical, remember I said they had to do a metallurgical examination on these fan blades to yeah. figure out which one broke. And the metallurgical examination of this blade established that the fracture had propagated initially by fatigue the origin of which appeared to be on the pressure face of the blade about 1.25 millimeters aft of the true leading edge. So what all that's to say is this fatigue fracture, it was a fatigue Mm -hmm. fracture, started on the pressure face of the blade about 1.25 millimeters away from the edge. So it's like the last one and a quarter millimeter away from the edge of it is where that fatigue crack started. And then that's where it broke. The transference of the original leading edge and pressure face surfaces to adjacent blades as a result of interblade clashing made it impossible to identify any surface feature which may have led to fatigue initiation. So after oh. it broke off, you know, it clanged around and broke stuff uh-huh. and damaged it to where they can't really determine any like surface damage that may have led to that initial fatigue. So they're unable to tell if it was visually preventable. Like Correct. If they could have. If it was a missed inspection, someone wasn't, didn't see it or, or saw it and didn't report it. Correct? Yeah. So they don't know. Right. Dang that, that. But they were able to say the depth of the material removed from the pressure face indicated if there had been an anomaly at the origin of the fracture, it must have only been very small. So you're talking about like a tiny, tiny fracture or imperfection at, at most. Oh, you know, honestly, that's kind of scarier that, that it was so slight. So there's there's another layer to this incident. Uh-huh. I, I was really hesitant to get into it, but since you since you said that, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it a little bit here. <laughs> but, but actually, I tell you what, there's there's one or two more paragraphs I'm gonna read here, then I'm gonna come back to that. Okay. Actually, so analysis of the engine from the crash determined that the fan blades of this engine were subject to abnormal amounts of vibration when operating at high power settings above 10,000 feet. Remember, I keep saying this was a brand new plane, a brand new 737 400. Oh, yeah. It was a new oh, type yeah. of plane. I keep forgetting that this is a brand new plane. It shouldn't have cracks. Right. So this was a new type of 737, the 737 400, with new types of engines on it. And what they realized was that this engine on this plane did have abnormal vibration when operating at high power above 10,000 feet. But because this was an upgrade to an existing engine, they didn't mandate any in-flight testing. And so this, this type of engine on this type of plane had only been tested in the laboratory. Oh, because... Because <laughs> it was upgrades. Yeah, it was just like, oh, well, this is just a slight modification. It's not... Right. So when they discovered this, they're like, oh, all of these engines on all of these planes have a vibration problem above 10,000 feet. They had to ground all of these 737 400s. Oh. There was, it was only 99. Again, this was a brand new plane. So they grounded the 99 of them, and then they had to test and redesign the turbofan engines so that 
this vibration wouldn't happen again. And the vibration is probably what caused the fracture? Well, the fracture may have already existed, but the vibrations exacerbated and caused it to grow and then ultimately break off. Oh. And and, and how long had this been in service? Oh, a couple of months. I I want to say uh, off the top of my head, I want to say it was like four months. I wonder how many of the other planes, you said there were 99 of them. How many other ones had almost like similar issues going to happen? I believe there was, again, I'm operating off the top of my head. Uh, uh-huh. I believe there was one other plane that they had issues with. No one, you know, passed away. It was, it was like, it was, it was a minor incident. Previously to this, though. Around the same time. I want to say it was right after this. Okay. I didn't write down the information on it because there really wasn't any information uh-huh. <laughs> uh, about it. All I, found, all I had was a tail number, which I tried to look up, and it was around that same time. So this plane's tail number was G-O-B-M-E, this British Midlands Airway flight we're talking about. Uh-huh. There was a similar incident with G-B-N-N-L. And it, it, I, again, there was not much information about it. Uh-huh. I couldn't find any in- evidence of a crash or anything. But they did mention that tail number in the report saying that they f- did a metallurgical examination on it. And then uh, there was also a blade fracture on that plane as well. Okay, but you don't know. It didn't say what, when it happened exactly. It's just... No, I'll- all I could see is when that plane came into service and really not much else. Okay. Yeah. So I, d- I did look it up, but there, were, there really wasn't much more to dig into there. So this vibration that we're talking about in these upgraded engines on this new plane created excessive metal fatigue in the fan blades. And on this accident flight caused one of the fan blades to break off. This damaged the engine and caused a reduction in power, caused an increase in vibration. Auto throttle attempted to compensate by increasing fuel flow to the engine. Which only made it worse. Right. It was unable to burn this extra fuel, which caused it to ignite, causing the large trail of flame. Uh, so like that's what kind of kicks everything off and starts all these problems. Yeah. And then, to make matters worse, the crew shuts down the number two engine, thinking it's the one that's <clears throat> broken. Which makes that one work harder when they're right. landing. Right. So you see... there, there It despite, wasn't just one issue. Right. Despite a seemingly simple, oh, they shut down the wrong engine explanation. It's like, well, there's a, there's a lot more. If you, st- if you really start digging, yeah. there's a lot more to get through here. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of findings. There's a lot of causes. I'm going to kind of briefly go through them uh-huh. just because there is something I want to. There's a whole other thing we haven't even touched on yet that I want to get to at the end of this. So I'm going to go through some of the findings and causes here like we always do. The flight deck crew experienced moderate to severe engine-induced vibration and shuddering accompanied by smoke and or the smell of fire as the aircraft climbed through 28,300 feet. This combination of symptoms was outside their training or experience, and they responded urgently by disengaging the autothrottles and throttling back the number two engine, which was running satisfactorily. This actually is kind of a, an all-too-common occurrence, by the way. There, there are other incidents we've, I think we've talked about and other ones we could talk about where... Uh-huh. There's an engine failure, it's misdiagnosed, and the one working engine is shut down. Mm. After the throttle was disengaged, and whilst the number two engine was running down, the number one engine recovered from the compressor stalls and began to settle at a slightly lower fan speed. This reduced the shuddering apparent on the flight deck, convincing the commander they had correctly identified the number two engine as a source of the problem. Mm-hmm. While the commander's decision to divert to East Midlands Airport to land with the minimum of delay was correct... He thereby incurred a high cockpit workload, which precluded any effective review of the emergency or the actions he had taken. I mean, we talked about that. He, the, he tried to start a review of what did we see exactly, but yeah. then got interrupted. Mm. The flight crew did not assimilate the readings on the engine instruments before they decided to throttle back the number two engine. After throttling back the number two engine, they did not assimilate the maximum vibration indication apparent on the number one engine before they shut down the number two engine. So... After throttling back the number two engine, they didn't do a, a vibration review of the instruments to make sure that what they had done was correct. So they didn't correctly look at the instruments, misdiagnosed it, turned off the wrong engine, and then didn't check to make sure that the vibrations were fixed? Is that what you're right. saying? Right. They, they, they could have looked at the instruments again and seen that the number one engine was still experiencing strange vibration. Yeah. And the aircraft checklist did give separate checklist for high vibration and for smoke but there was no checklist for a combination of those two oh yeah so that's like that's an important detail like oh Hmm. there needs to be a checklist for that for both yeah right so they're gonna add a checklist now (laughs) yeah the commander remained unaware of the blue sparks and flames which had been issued from the number one engine which had been observed by many passengers and three of the apt cabin crew 
53 seconds before ground impact, when the aircraft was 900 feet above ground and 2.4 miles from the runway, with landing gear down and 15 degrees of flaps selected, there was an abrupt decrease in power from the number one engine. The commander immediately called for the first officer to relight the number two engine. The attempted restart was not successful, probably because there was insufficient bleed air pressure from the number one engine. Pressure air from the APU was not connected, and the bleed air crossfeed valve was closed. Even if pressure air had been available, it is unlikely the power could have been obtained from number two engine before the aircraft hit the ground. Very technical. Uh-huh. Basically, not enough time, and things weren't exactly set up right to restart the number two engine. It's it's a long process to get these engines started. Yeah, and they were too close to the ground, which yeah. makes sense when you think about how close they were. There's actually a note here about the cabin crew in the report. Although the cabin crew immediately became aware of heavy vibration at the onset of the emergency and three aft cabin crew saw flames emanating from number one engine, this information was not communicated to the pilots. Oh, so the cabin crew actually... Yeah, Mm. some cabin crew saw it. They should have let someone know about it. Yeah, it's not like... Because if it's a passenger, I feel like you'd be a little more hesitant to be like, hey, just so you know, I know you said you're turning off this one. There was... You know, flames coming out that one or smoke coming up. But the cabin crew. But remember, they were also preoccupied trying to get ready for their diversion, their emergency landing. They, none of them remembered hearing the captain say he shut off the right engine. Oh, and they were they were probably passengers panicking. They're trying to calm them and get them right. ready. To, yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about here before we wrap this up is there's a section in the report about survivability. Uh-huh. Of the eight crew and 118 passengers on board, all crew members survived, but 39 passengers died from impact injuries at the scene, and a further eight passengers died later in the hospital. Where, where, where were most of the passengers located on the plane? Was it the back? It was all over. Uh, yeah, I think uh, there was more survivability in the back, if I remember correctly. But okay. the seats had become dislodged from the floor, and they were all kind of sandwiched together back there. Because if you remember, this crash happened like on an embankment on a pretty steep hill. Oh, yeah. So even like uh, rescuers getting in oh. and pulling survivors out was very difficult because of the incline. So it was, it was re- and with all the chairs kind of sandwiched together, you know, gravity's kind of pushing them back. It was really difficult to get into and to get people out of there. And people were probably injured and st- smushed uh, like right. behind the chairs and, oh. The decelerations generated in the second impact were greater than those specified in the airworthiness requirements to which the airframe and furnishings were designed and certified. They were, however, within the physiological tolerances of a typical passenger. So the same, the force of the impact was greater than what the plane is designed for, but it was still survivable by people, which is why people survived. Passenger survivability was improved due to the passenger seats being of a design with impact tolerance in advance of the current regulatory requirements. This was most evident in the overwing and tail sections of the cabin where the floor had remained intact. So the seats, the passenger seats were actually over-designed more than they needed to be. They were designed to take on more than they needed to be. So they held up and that's Uh why people were able to live. However, there's a very important note I just said there. I don't know if you caught it. Uh This was most evident in the overwing and tail sections of the cabin where the floor had remained intact. Oh, the floor came undone? The floor came undone. So the seats... The seats did their job, but the floor didn't serve, didn't hold up to the forces of impact. So that's why the seats ended up kind of sandwiching each other. And like the seats, even though they were secure enough to keep someone to survive this impact, the floor gave out and the seats then became loose and began moving around. So it, this, this was actually one of the things that got changed in airplane design as a result of this accident was floors had to be designed better. Wow. Yeah. yeah to survive impact. It's probably something... You would never think of. Yeah. When you said that, you know, the seats didn't hold up or the way you described it, I was thinking like, you know, like the seat snapping off, but not the floor snapping off. Right. One of the uh, investigators who worked on this said, you know, when they first arrived there and walked into the plane, they were shocked to see that when they walked into the fuselage, into the wreckage, they could see the dirt and all the ground beneath them because the floor was gone. Oh, my God. Like, but isn't in in the luggage and stuff underneath the cabin yeah but it doesn't necessarily go the entire length of the plane but yeah that that is where it would be uh, and then another thing speaking of luggage uh there's one more another point i want to read here although the overhead stowage bins met the appropriate airworthiness requirements for static loading all but one of the 30 bins fell from their attachments which did not withstand the dynamic loading conditions in this accident oh 
some of the doors on the overhead stowage bins opened during the last seconds of flight, demonstrating uh-huh. the need for some form of improvement latching of the doors. That's another thing that changed because of this accident. Yeah. Is the overhead bin design. All of that got redesigned so that they are more hardy and they will not fall down anymore in the event of a, of a crash. I'm sure that made rescuing a lot more difficult if you're fighting oh, yeah. through all the luggage. Right. And the luggage could hit people real hard, right? right? Yeah. So already, you know, we're seeing the, these two were huge improvements for safety. The, the floor design and uh-huh. overhead bin design. The other thing and the thing that I think is probably even more influential as a result of this accident is before this accident, there was no standardized brace position. Oh, Every airline and every like safety card that you would see on different airlines all had different instructions for what to do in the event of a, uh, an emergency and the different ways to brace. There was, and they were not backed up with any scientific data. Oh. So when the investigators came upon this accident, they saw you know, the people who survived and how pe- the people who died, they realized that they needed to come up with standardized bracing positions. And that's why now you know, there's two different bracing positions that are standardized everywhere on all kinds of planes. You know, you either, you know, lean forward and cross your hands and put your head on the seat in front of you. Or if there's enough space, you lean forward, wrap your arms under your legs, behind your knees and put your head all the way down. Because before that, you know, pe- the, the biggest cause of injuries and deaths would be people not being able to control their heads and their heads either slamming forward on, the, on something in front of them or their necks getting twisted as oh. a result of the forces. So that's why these brace positions that we have now are designed to minimize your head movement and to save your head and your neck. And was some of this determined based off who survived? Yep. Wow. Based on the people who survived and the people who died in this crash. So the reason we have standardized bracing positions for impact nowadays is because of this flight, because of this accident. They're like, how did you brace? Right. Oh. So what did they tell, what did they tell them whenever they said brace for impact? I don't know what it was back then. I'm sure the card said something. Uh-huh. But at that time, they just kind of made it up. There was no like scientific research there was no this is the best way to do it it was just like yeah whatever wow so i think that's the biggest takeaway from british midland 92 is the 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 standardized scientifically proven brace positions we have nowadays on top of of course the floor improvements and the overhead bins being better secured i want to say at the time these seats that they were sitting in i again off the top of my head i want to say they were designed to withstand up to like 16 g's of force oh yeah, which is an incredible amount of force to be going through. But the and floor. Of course, the floor couldn't take it. So now floors have to be redesigned to be able to support the seats as well. But that's it. British Midland 92. A very complicated uh, <laughs> I, uh, crash that resulted in many safety improvements. I, I, have, I have more follow-up if you can. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Was anything changed in respect to the testing of like engine adjustments because you said there was like an adjustment to the engine but it wasn't tested other than in simulators like was that changed yeah i don't have the specifics for that right in front of me Mm -hmm. uh but i do believe that the like the airworthiness certificate process was updated so that there had to be real world testing okay before these kinds of things could be rolled out and this is actually this is eerily similar to the problems with the boeing 737 max and the mcas system which we talked about before where that was considered an upgrade. Oh, there yeah. was no need for recertification or retraining. And then we ended up with two crashes because of Isn't that. Isn't that the one too, where they like basically asked a favor or kind of called in a favor? <laughs> that was, yes, but you might also be thinking of the old cargo doors on the DC-10 where oh, they had the gentleman's agreement. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> it, weird how these things keep happening, huh? Like... <laughs> You play, you play whack-a-mole trying to find all of these problems and just constantly rewriting regulations and improving safety, hoping that you can get around these kinds of things. Yeah. Okay, I have one, one last thing. Yeah. As far as culpability, how much was given to the pilots? How much to the airline or the plane manufacturer? Was there any, any like I don't know, blame laid upon? Or is it kind of like all spread out? I can't answer that for certain. I can't say that both of these pilots were let go from the airline uh-huh. after this accident. To me, this seems like a failure on the part of the manufacturer uh-huh. uh, because of the engines and the lack of testing. But they would say that there was no regulations requiring it. So maybe it's a regulatory issue. Mm. Again, like like lots of things, it's a very complicated 
issue. So I, if, if you were asking me, I would say it's in order of culpability. Again, I, have, I don't know what the actual legal fallout was. Yeah. I don't know who it would be. My opinion is order of culpability would probably be, oh man, regulatory agency, manufacturer, pilots. Yeah. I think. I don't know. That's a tough one, Chris. That's hard, man. I don't know. Because even though there was all these problems, if it had been diagnosed, there's like three areas that were needed fixing. <laughs> yeah. Or, or three areas where the problem could have been fixed. Could have been headed off. Ta- right. Yeah. Yeah. Taken care of before this happened. Yeah. Yeah. Tough one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I said earlier, follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod. I'm going to post some images and you'll see how close this crash was both to the motorway and to the airport. You can see it all. It's uh, really, really uh, unbelievable to look at. Yeah. And also, and I've said it before, but thank you to everyone who uh, over the holidays got some of our merch and people who signed up for our premium membership, uh, which you can find out more at blackboxdownpod.com, which helps support us. So thank you very much. And please consider checking out or getting some merch or, you know, getting... Or premium. Yeah. So thank you. What Chris said. Yeah. All right. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>